If you know history, then you know that the Jewish people have suffered immensely. The most notable occasion was the Holocaust of the last century, but there have been many other occasions throughout history in various places around the world. Because anti-Semitism is rampant in our world, and because Satan hates God's chosen people, Israel, the Jews have been the brunt of many forms of persecution down through the centuries. But amazingly, their greatest suffering is yet to come. There are many passages in Scripture that predict this fact, and one of them records the words of Jesus himself on the subject. It is found in Mark chapter 13, so please turn there with me if you are not already there and follow along as I read verses 14 through 20. This is our Lord speaking as we read these words. Verse 14, so when you see The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days." We've been looking at this chapter for a few weeks now. It is technically known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave this message as he was sitting somewhere on the Mount of Olives, as we saw back in verse 3. The message was prompted by a question from the disciples regarding the fulfillment or consummation of all things. They wanted to know what was going to happen at the end of the age. So here in chapter 13, Jesus tells them. As we have seen over the last several messages, the primary focus of these words and events is the Jewish people. That comes out once again in the verses we just read because Jesus specifically addresses the people who are in Judea, which is in the land of Israel. He says in verse 14, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. These words, although spoken to the disciples, are intended for the Jewish people who will be living during the tribulation period. We know that because of the parenthetical comment here in the middle of this verse, which says, whoever reads, let him understand. Some of the Jewish people will read these words during the future seven-year tribulation period, and they will know what to do. So Jesus is telling his disciples what is going to happen with and to the Jewish people at the end of the age. They will be hated, and they will be persecuted. The key event in connection with their persecution will be the abomination of desolation spoken of by Jesus here in verse 14. 
What Jesus doesn't mention in verse 14 is who it is that will commit the abomination of desolation. That's probably because the book of Daniel spells that out in such detail that Jesus didn't feel the need to elaborate any further. The book of Daniel clearly tells us that there will arise in the future a man who will become the leader of the world. He is called by various titles in Scripture, the man of sin, the little horn, but we know him most commonly as the Antichrist. He is such a dominant figure in Scripture that 1 John 2.18 says, Little children, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. John's readers had heard about this man because he's mentioned many times throughout Scripture. He is the one who will commit the abomination of desolation, as we saw from the book of Daniel in the last message of this series. But not only does Daniel tell us a great deal about this man, so does the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Turn with me to look at that passage for just a few moments. Over to the right to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. One of the most diabolical men ever to live in human history was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He reigned as king near the end of the Grecian rule from 175 to 163 B.C. Seventeen years later, the Grecian Empire fell to Rome. Antiochus persecuted the Jewish people viciously. Listen to one historian's account, and I quote, Antiochus commanded the Jews to substitute pagan worship of idols for the worship of Yahweh. He ordered them to forget the law, to profane their Sabbaths and feast days, to stop circumcising male infants, to offer the flesh of pigs and other unclean animals as sacrifices, and to defile themselves with all kinds of perverted practices. He had copies of the law torn and burned. He decreed that all Jews who kept copies of the law, obeyed the law, or had children circumcised should be put to death. He had circumcised babies hanged. Through his cruel policies, many righteous Jews were put to death, end quote. Antiochus was a madman. He took to himself the title Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, which means Antiochus God manifest. The people actually called him, a little play on words here, Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the maniac. He ordered all the sacrifices to cease. Then he set up an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and had a female pig slaughtered on the altar. He shoved pork down the throat of the high priest He attacked the Jews on the Sabbath because he knew they wouldn't fight back on the Sabbath. He would dress and disguise himself so that he could mingle among the Jewish people to find out what they thought about him in their conversations. He would often lie and make peace treaties with the Jews only to turn around and slaughter them. There's no doubt about the fact that Antiochus was empowered by, directed by Satan himself. It seems that Satan was using him to try to wipe out the Jewish people to prevent the Messiah from coming. 
At some point in the future, another man will come on the scene of human history. He will be very much like Antiochus, but worse. Paul tells about him here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ or the day of of God had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin or the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, is revealed, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The Apostle Paul wrote this section of his letter to provide relief for the minds of the dear believers in Thessalonica. As indicated in verse 2, these saints were extremely disturbed and distressed because they thought that somehow they had ended up in the day of the Lord. Paul had taught them back in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5 that the great gathering together of believers unto Jesus in the air would take place before the day of the Lord. But because they were experiencing severe persecution, which they knew would be a part of the day of the Lord, and because someone had told them that Paul had changed his position, as indicated in verse 2, they were extremely shaken. Thus, Paul writes to assure them that he hasn't changed his viewpoint, he hasn't changed his position, and they were not in the day of the Lord. One of the reasons why they could be confident that they were not in the day of the Lord, says Paul in verse 3, was because the Antichrist had not yet burst forth onto the world scene. But he is coming. And that is the subject that occupies Paul's attention for the next several verses of this chapter. As we saw in the last message in this series, Scripture has much to say about this coming world leader. Paul's description of him here in verse 4 lines up exactly with what other scriptures have to say about this man. Verse 4 says, Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now this is not really a new announcement, because both Daniel and Jesus prophesied that the future Antichrist would do this very thing at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. Jesus, borrowing from the words of Daniel's prophecy, called this event the abomination of desolation. Therefore, when Paul taught this to the Thessalonians, he had ample material from which to draw, the teaching of Daniel and the teaching of Jesus. Verse 5, he says, Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Paul had regularly taught these things to the Thessalonians, drawing from the teaching of Daniel and Jesus. But there is one text he didn't have access to because it wasn't written yet, and that is Revelation chapter 13. Skip over to that text to see what John's vision adds to our understanding of this future world leader. Revelation chapter 13. 
Verse 1 says, Then I stood on the sea of the sand. Now, some manuscripts and therefore some English translations. Then he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. If your translation reads in verse 1, then he stood, instead of I stood, the he would be a reference to the dragon from verse 17 of chapter 12. Satan is pictured here as as standing on the sand of the sea to call forth his man, the Antichrist. In the ancient thought, the sea was commonly the reservoir of evil. It was viewed that way because it was mysterious and it was fear-inspiring. So John sees a beast rising up out of the sea. What or who is this beast? It becomes clear in the verses that follow that the beast is both a system and a person. The description that John gives us in the early verses of this chapter is of the world system of the end times. So you could say the beast is the revived Roman Empire. But at the end of verse 4, the personal pronoun him appears, and the personal pronoun is continually used after that. Verse 5 says he, verse 6 says he, verse 7 says him, verse 8 says him. So the beast is the world system headed up by the Antichrist, just as the Third Reich was headed up by Hitler. John describes this beast as having seven heads and ten horns. By the way, this is the same way Satan is described back in chapter 12, verse 3. The seven heads probably represent seven successive world empires. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the final kingdom of the Antichrist. The ten horns represent the ten kingdoms that will compose the final one world government. The book of Daniel portrays this idea a couple times. In Daniel chapter 2, there is a huge image of a man and the ten toes on the feet of the image represent the ten kingdoms that will compose the final one world government. In Daniel 7, there is a vision in which there are ten horns And from these ten horns comes the little horn, which is none other than the Antichrist himself. Daniel 7.24 clearly says the ten horns are ten kings. The end of verse 1 says, And on his heads a blasphemous name. This is explained for us further down in verses 5 and 6, where we read, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. We've seen this so many times that it gets nauseating to think about. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 describes the Antichrist as the man who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. If Antiochus Epiphanes was a maniac, and he was, this man will be the ultimate ego maniac. He will be the beast 
who heads up the monstrous satanic system of the end times, which is designed to destroy God's people and ruin God's program. And he will indeed cause enormous devastation, which is why Jesus gave the Jewish people his warning in our text in Mark chapter 13. So John sees this beast, this monster, coming up out of the sea in verse 1. Verse 2 says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Interestingly, this is a conglomeration of the beast in Daniel's dream, recorded in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, the leopard represents the kingdom of Greece. The bear represents the Medo-Persian kingdom. The lion represents the kingdom of Babylon. So what this is indicating is this. The final world empire will be a conglomeration of all of man's empires combined into one because the man heading it up, the Antichrist, will be a combination of all the world rulers who have ever reigned. As a leopard, the beast will be swift. The bear's feet symbolize the bruising force and ability to crush its prey. The mouth of a lion symbolizes ferocity and terror. That's what the saints of the last days will have to face. This beast will be extremely powerful. The last sentence of verse 2 tells us from where his power will come because we read at the end of verse 2, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. The beast will be Satan-inspired, Satan-empowered, Satan-directed, and Satan-controlled. He will not only be demonized, he will be Satanized. According to verse 10 of this chapter, he will have power over freedom and life. Verse 10 says, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What that is saying is that the beast will persecute and kill Jews and believers during his reign of terror. He will have freedom He will have power over freedom and life. According to verses 16 and 17, he will have power over the entire business of mankind. Verse 16 says he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. That is how much power And authority, this man and his system will exert over planet earth. No one will be able to buy or sell without his mark. It might be worth asking the question, how does this man attain such great power? I mean, think about it. How could, as complex as our world is today, how could one man arise with such great power and influence? Well, for one thing, as we just saw, Satan will energize him. But from a political standpoint, what will be the circumstances that allow him to gain so much influence and rise to such a position? If you look back in history at world dictators, the answer is almost always the same. 
The answer to that question is chaos or crisis. When things are in chaos, the mass of people just want someone, anyone, who can sort things out and get life back on track. Political or social or economic chaos sets the stage for someone to step forward and be followed by the mass of humanity. I believe that's what is going to aid the Antichrist's rise to power. We already know from Daniel chapter 9 that he will sign some kind of seven-year treaty or covenant with Israel. Maybe he'll be able to solve the Israeli-Arab conflict. No one has been, been able to do so thus far. So if things continue to degenerate in the Middle East to the point of chaos or crisis or the possibility of a, a, a looming third world war, world war and the Antichrist comes up with a solution, people will flock to him. But it is my opinion that that's not the only chaos he will resolve. Since I believe the Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture, it seems to me that the world will be in chaos when that takes place. What a perfect opportunity for this man to capitalize on. And since he will be empowered by Satan, he will be able to use the chaotic conditions of the world to step right into the limelight. But there may be something else that will greatly aid him at getting into that position. Look at verse 3 of Revelation 13. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. To what is this referring? There are basically two options. Number one, this may have reference to the revival of a dead empire or dead kingdom. There is going to be a revival of the ancient Roman Empire, or the ancient Western Empire. We know that from Daniel and other places in Revelation. And that may be what this symbolism is portraying. When the ancient Roman Empire, which has been thought to be dead, is revived, the people of the world may marvel and pledge their allegiance to this new superpower. But there's another possibility as to what this is referencing. Option number two is this. It is possible, please hear me, I'm only saying possible, that the Antichrist will be killed or nearly killed and revived. The phrase, as if it had been mortally wounded, is the same phrase used back in Revelation 5, verse 6 to refer to the death of Christ. That's evidence, some evidence for the view that this man will die or nearly die, or be thought to be dead, and somehow come back to life. This deadly wound, by the way, is emphasized several times in Revelation. Just in this chapter it's emphasized. Look down at verse 12, where it says, and, and he exercises, this is talking about the second beast, the false prophet. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, watch, whose deadly wound was healed. And then in verse 14, 
And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Several times when John mentions the beast, he refers to the fact that he had a mortal wound which was healed. Furthermore, it is interesting to note that back in chapter 11, verse 7, it says this man comes out of the abyss. So if you put all the information together, it's not a stretch to suggest the possibility that this man will die, or at least appear to die, descend into the abyss, and then come back to the earth. No wonder all the world will marvel. The world refuses to accept the resurrection of the true Christ, but they will accept the resurrection of the false Christ. In fact, the word antichrist means against Christ. That's how we usually think of the word. But it also, the Greek preposition anti means instead of. So antichrist can also mean instead of Christ. This man will be embraced by the world instead of the true Christ. They will embrace the false Christ. And verse 4 of Revelation 13 says, So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Worship is the one thing Satan has always wanted. Remember Matthew 4, the temptations of Jesus? Satan says, just bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Worship is the one thing Satan has always wanted, and he will receive it through the beast. The world will worship the beast by saying, who is like the beast? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, then you know that there are many times when the writers of Holy Scripture exalt the uniqueness of God, the uniqueness of Yahweh in comparison to all the false gods in the, in, in the cultures around the people of Israel. The, the Holy Scripture exalts the uniqueness of God by saying, who is like God? Who is like Yahweh? Who compares to Yahweh, the true God, the God of Israel? And of course, the answer is absolutely no one compares to the true God. No one compares to God. But the world will be so enamored with the beast that they will blasphemously exclaim, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Satan will have this world believing that through his man, the Antichrist, he has usurped God's position as the sovereign king of the universe and his kingdom cannot be defeated. That's what the world will believe. And verse 5 says, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Notice how this verse begins. It says, And he was given. That phrase is used four times in this section, and it communicates a very, very important point, which is this. God has granted all of this to happen. God is still in control. 
even though it will look like the Antichrist is in control, the fact of the matter is that God will still be sovereign. This will, will all be happening only because of divine permission. And this thought is emphasized four times right here in these verses. The end of verse 5 says, And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Listen, the one giving this authority is obviously God because Satan certainly wouldn't limit his authority to a mere 42 months. Satan would want this man to reign indefinitely. But he's given authority. That is divine permission. Verse 7 begins with the phrase, It was granted to him. The middle of the verse says, And authority was given him. The Holy Spirit wants to make sure that we don't miss this point. God, when all of this begins to happen on planet earth, God has not lost control. He is allowing these things. He has granted these things to happen to fulfill his own divine purposes. The first thing mentioned that the Antichrist will be allowed to do is to utter great things and blasphemies. He will claim to be God and demand to be worshipped as God. That is a great claim, to say the least, and it is utterly blasphemous. When will he begin to make such claims? At the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation. During the first three and a half years, he will be an important player on the world scene, but he will come across as a broker of peace, a man of peace. His true character comes out at the midpoint of the tribulation period. That's when I see him finally being able to kill God's two special witnesses described in chapter 11, verse 7. Then he will break his treaty with Israel and set himself up in the temple claiming to be God. So his reign of terror will last for the final 42 months of the tribulation, which is three and a half years. Verse 6 says, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Blasphemy is such a predominant characteristic of this man that it's mentioned again here in this verse. It's interesting to note that almost every passage that describes this man, whether you're talking Daniel, 2 Thessalonians, wherever you go and you see this man described, almost every single time his blasphemy is mentioned. That, is such, that will be such a dominant characteristic of this man, his blasphemy. He will blaspheme God, this verse says. He will blaspheme God's name. And then the interesting one, he will blaspheme those who dwell in heaven. Why will the Antichrist blaspheme those who dwell in heaven? Against whom is this blasphemy directed? My guess is, and it's just a guess, my guess is that it is directed against the church that has been caught up to heaven. Somehow, this man is going to have to explain away what has happened when the church is caught up to be with the Lord. He's going to have to give some explanation. Maybe he will blame the raptured saints for all the catastrophic judgments that will be unleashed on earth during this time. The judgments described in Revelation 6, all of those seal judgments, and then the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. We don't know exactly what he's going to say or how all this will play out, but the text clearly says he will blaspheme those who dwell in heaven. But the primary focus, focus of his blasphemy 
will be God himself. Verse 7 says, It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is a monumental statement. Daniel 7.23, when describing this same man in his career, says he will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. Daniel 7.25 says he will wear out the saints of the Most High. That is why Jesus warned the Jews when he said these words, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, flee to the mountains and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world. It's going to be an awful time for the Jewish people and for those who come to faith in Christ during that time. No wonder Jesus gave the warning he did in our text in Mark 13. Now let's go back there as we wind down the message this morning. Back back to Mark 13. So the consistent teaching of Scripture from Daniel, from 2 Thessalonians, from the book of Revelation, and here in Mark 13, is that the Jewish people are facing their worst persecution ever when the Antichrist sets up in the temple the abomination that makes desolate. That's why Jesus says what he does here in verse 14. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, and by the way, as we'll see in just a second here in the middle of this verse, the you, when you see, it's the people reading these words, not the, not the people Jesus was speaking to at this time. This is, this is future. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Since this same phrase, let the reader understand, appears in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, that would indicate that Jesus was the one who spoke those words. What I mean is, when you just look at Matthew or Mark, you might think, well, now, is this an editorial comment by Matthew or an editorial comment by Mark? And that's a possibility that both made this editorial comment. But it's more likely that Jesus, as he spoke these words, even said, let the reader understand, indicating he was speaking these words to be recorded and then read, and the message would apply to those who would read these words in the future. And Jesus says, when you see this, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Judea, as you probably know, is the southern part of the land of Israel. Galilee in the north, Samaria in the center, Judea in the south. So Judea is the southern part of the land of Israel where the city of Jerusalem is located. That's where the first two temples stood, Solomon's temple and then the second temple, which was refurbished by Herod, sometimes called Herod's temple, but it was built long before Herod. 
That's where the first two temples stood, and that is where the third temple will someday stand. There the Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation by setting up himself in the temple and will demand that the Jews worship him. He forbids them to continue carrying on their sacrifices, demands that they worship him. When they refuse, he will persecute them ruthlessly. That's why here in this verse, Jesus warned those who are in Judea to flee to the mountains. Because of their proximity to Jerusalem, they will be the first to come under the Antichrist's wrath. So Jesus said, flee to the mountains. There is a mountainous region southeast of Jerusalem around the Dead Sea that has lots of caves and places to hide. There is a spring there, the spring of En Gedi that I know many of you have hiked up to and you've seen it. You've seen all the caves. You've seen all. The, that's where David hid from Saul. That area may be where the Jews initially flee when the persecution breaks out because Jesus says, go to the mountains And that would be a mountainous region where they could go and get there fairly quickly. In addition, there are a number of mountainous regions in the hills of Moab and Edom, ancient Moab and Edom, today the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. The Jewish people are going to need all the places of refuge they can find because Antichrist's fury will be the most intense persecution ever as he tries to annihilate the Jewish people, once and for all, end God's program, prove God to be a liar because God made unconditional promises to the people of Israel that he will and must fulfill. And so Satan's plot is if I can kill all the Jewish people, God can't fulfill his promises to them, I prove God a liar. So that's why, that's the reason behind all of these events that we've looked at this morning. God will use that persecution to finally bring his chosen people to repentance so they will embrace their Messiah, Jesus. That's what it will take to get them to repent and believe in Jesus. What about for you? What will it take to bring you to the point where you are willing to surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ? I pray that it won't take a catastrophe. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes, contemplating what you have seen this morning from God's Word, it's obvious that there is a cosmic battle behind what goes on here on planet Earth. And that will really culminate at some point in the future as God determines to fulfill his promises to Abraham and his descendants and when Satan tries to stop God from fulfilling his promise to Abraham, his promises to Abraham and his descendants. So there's more than meets the eye. There's always more behind the scenes. But that's what it will take. Scripture is clear. That's what it will take to finally break the Jewish people of their stubbornness their hard-heartedness, their willful unbelief. That's what it will take to get them to repent and believe in Jesus. And again, I say, what about for you? If you're here this morning without 
being right with Jesus Christ, what will it take for you to break, for you to finally yield and give in and surrender to Jesus Christ? I pray it won't take a catastrophe. Turn to Christ now, willingly. Surrender to Him. Father, as we consider the things that we have looked at this morning, we recognize that you were not obligated to reveal the future to us. You didn't have to do that. But in your goodness and in your wisdom, you chose to say much about the future. And the assumption then should be that you would want us to read about it and try to learn about it and understand it, not ignore it, because you put it in your word for a reason, for us to grapple with and wrestle with and seek to understand. Certainly, we can be out of balance and be too consumed with prophetic prophecy to where we ignore so many other parts of Scripture, and that would be unwise and and not prudent. But when kept in balance, this, this is clearly a topic you want us to understand. It's clearly a topic you want us to read about and study about. And we see that from what Jesus said in his great Olivet Discourse. Thank you for the privilege that is ours to study it, to read it, to wrestle with it. And as we think about what we've seen this morning, we realize that you you will do whatever it takes to fulfill your promises. You will do whatever it takes to carry out what you promised to Abraham and his descendants. And as we've seen, for them it will involve immense suffering and persecution. Father, you know the hardness of our hearts, all of us, as those who are sinners by birth, nature, choice, practice. And you know that many times, for many of us, it takes something really, really hard for us to surrender, for us to turn to you, because we're so willful, we're so stubborn, all of us. Father, I pray that one of the applications we can draw from the text we've looked at this morning that is that it is so much better for us just out of love and willingness to, to submit, surrender to Christ without having to be, in a sense, forced to that point by awful situations in life. But we know that many times that's what it takes. So we thank you that whatever it takes, you do that in our lives to draw us to Christ. And we pray that for anyone here with us this morning who needs to be brought to faith in Jesus Christ, do whatever it takes to bring that man or woman or young person to to surrender to him in whose name we pray, amen.